Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. It's the 29th of April, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Mornings with Carmen on Faith Radio. Thank you for uh, taking me along for the ride. Where are we going today? Where are we headed today? You are already out and about and uh, moving in the day in the direction of the day. Or you know what? You're lying there in bed and now you're smiling because you didn't have to get up yet. And you are, in my view, luxuriating. I just consider that just the opportunity to luxuriate if you can still be, you know, in your little nest until this time of the day. Um, or it, I maybe you are, um, you know, maybe we're out for a walk later in the day because you're listening via the podcast, in which case um, I love that as well. What are we out doing? Who are we walking with? What are you seeing? Is it spring yet where you are? You know, there's lots of questions. I have thoughts. Uh, my verse for this morning that the Lord um, gave me as a Truly, like some days I feel like the word comes just as such a gift to me. So this morning, the gift that the Lord sent uh, came in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Uh, And again, you know, it's not new. You've read this a thousand times, but what a gift this morning. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Friends, Jesus is our hope. He is our hope and our salvation. Um, We are living on this side of Easter. We're Easter people. We're recognizing the reality and the power of the resurrection. Um, We have real hope. It is substantial. It is based in reality. It is sure and certain hope. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Do you need some strength renewal this morning? I know I do. Maybe you need some strength renewal this morning. Well, just know that the Lord um, stands ready to provide it. His mercies are new every morning. Thanks be to God. So one uh, life news headline here uh, before we jump into our conversation with Steve West and do our Liberties Roundup. Um, uh, Oklahoma lawmakers passed a six-week abortion ban yesterday modeled after the uh, Texas abortion law. It allows private citizens to take civil action against abortion providers to enforce the law. And the bill would prohibit abortions at the time when a physician can detect early cardiac activity. You would think of this as a heartbeat bill. It can be as early as six weeks uh, into pregnancy. And so, um, yeah, I think that this is going to be the next the sort of pivot point in terms of conversations across the country. We've been talking about uh, in anticipation of the Supreme Court taking action um, on Roe v. Wade that states across the country are, you know, making their decisions about um, where where they're going to stand in terms of life and the pre-born. So I wanted to bring you up to date on that this morning. Steve West joins us next. He's the editor of the Liberties Roundup for World Magazine. 
Um, you know, if you've been wondering, like, what's going on in terms of the president of the United States and the conscience rights of healthcare workers? That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us, he's the editor of the Liberties Roundup for World Magazine. You can find what we're discussing at WNG, that stands for World News Group, WNG.org. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. All right, explain to us what is going on um, in terms of conscience rights of healthcare workers. Right. Well, you know, the the uh, this administration, right from its outset, has announced that it was support transgender rights. And in fact, that was the very first executive order entered by President Biden the very first day he took office. And so uh, these kind of things have been filtering through the different agencies of the federal government ever since. And so the most recent thing is that the administration is pushing two new rules that will impact the Affordable Care Act, or what we know as Obamacare, uh, which will add sexual orientation and gender identity to the list of protected classes under that, and also expand the definition of essential health benefits to include treatments under insurance plans for those undergoing gender transition, you know, when those services or kind of things are covered for other patients. So let me give you, give you sort of a sense of what this means. What this means is that if a, a hospital or a provider uh, offers a mastectomy or a hysterectomy for women who are suffering from cancer, then it also has to offer that as a gender transition surgery for biological women who are transitioning or want to transition to be a man because they believe that they are a man. So this obviously has an impact uh, on uh, many hospitals, some hospitals that are faith-based, some providers who are faith-based who don't want to have to provide these types of things because they're against conscience. It kind of goes along with uh, another rule that the, the administration is seeking to revoke, which has been a conscience protection for healthcare professionals who don't want to engage in, whether it's abortion or some other type of procedure, these gender transition procedures that uh, are violate their religious beliefs. And so it's thinking of retracting that rule, which will require these Christian medical professionals, other professionals uh, who are not Christians, who have religious objections or ethical objections to these procedures, to under to do these procedures. So that's where we are. That's the kind of problem we are. These have not taken effect yet, but these rules are likely uh, uh, to take, take effect under the Biden administration, or at least uh, be put in place and be challenged. So I, I expect we'll see a number of, of years of uh, challenges to these particular uh, regulations once they become final. So this rulemaking process it, um, related to the Department of Health and Human Services and this conscience protection um, that is currently in place for healthcare workers and providers, um, it, it this is not this doesn't rise to the level of legislation. So this is um, this is a part of you know the role of the administrative state in the making of rules. Um, I think that's part of the challenge that we face here um, when when something is not, you know, concretized in in the rule of law, um, then it can move back and forth depending on literally who's in the White House. 
Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, that's what happened with the uh, contraceptive mandate that was litigated for so many years. The Little Sisters of the Poor, which is a an order of nuns who uh, objected to including that in their insurance plan. You know, that went all the way to the Supreme Court twice. And then in 2020, the court handed them a win. Uh, uh, they kind of sidestepped one of the main issues in the case, but they won nonetheless. But that went on for years because they were pushing this contraceptive mandate through, again, you know, administrative rec uh, uh, regulations, like you mentioned. Uh, so that could be the kind of situation that we're in at this point with these type of regulations for transgender uh, procedures. So we're talking with Steve West. Um, he is an attorney. He he does a, a, a yeoman's task uh, on a continual basis, putting together something called the Liberties Roundup for World Magazine. You can find it at World News Group, WNG.org. Um, Steve, let's talk about pronouns. First of all, you know, since it's been a while since we um, <clears throat> went to school and went through this list, when you think about pronouns, there's sort of a traditional list, and now there is a very non-traditional list. When you think about pronouns, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about he and she and they and them. Uh, the, these, um, these situations involve pronouns, some of which I can't even pronounce, uh, that are out there. And uh, when you think about a student who wants to be referred to as they, uh, because, you know, because they're non-binary, they say they're not he or she. And that just uh, in terms of syntax, that just completely messes your mind up to even think about that. Um, but that's what's going on. I mean, and there are a number of these pronoun policies that are in place both in high schools, you know, even middle schools, uh, I think even elementary schools um, and in certainly in college environments where Teachers, uh, faculty are required to address students by their preferred pronoun, whether it matches their biological sex or not. And so that's what came up in a particular case recently that settled uh, successfully. It's a good news case because the uh, professor in the case, he was a professor at Shawnee State University in Ohio, a public school, uh, a public university. Nicholas Merriweather received a $400,000 settlement and, and attorney's fees as a result of the school being directed last year uh, to allow him to to not require him to address a student by their preferred pronoun. Mr. Weatherweather, uh, Merriweather would not do that because he felt like it was a lie to tell the student or to address the student as a he when the student was a biological she, uh, and he could not do that. He was happy to address the student by whatever first name they chose but just not uh, to engage in what for him was um, an unreality. Uh, it just could not be because biological sex or sex was fixed at birth along with gender at birth. And so this was a pretty strong case for him last year, and it ended up settling this year, and the school said he will no longer have to address a student by a preferred pronoun. Uh, he's able to act in accordance with his conscience. And he gets, you know, and, and there's a settlement in his favor because this has been a, a long, long battle for him. Yeah, I, so I suspect. Yeah, I suspect, Steve, that you're going to need to watch the unfolding uh, of what I assume is going to be a case in Oklahoma after 
Uh, Governor Kevin Stitt signed a bill on Tuesday explicitly prohibiting the use of non-binary gender markers or pronouns um, on state birth certificates. So I I would um, expect that um, there are going to be some people who are um, insisting on, I don't know, Z-C-A-E-T-E-Z-M-C-M-V-E-R-T-E-M-Z-E-R-H-E-R, not not her traditional spelling, H-I-R, ir vis Tim, er, this, hers, ers, verse, terse, ers, thyself, hyself, herself, verself, terself, himself. Mm-hmm. That's um, that's Goodness. today's uh, list that I'm supposed to be read in on as a member of the media, and I'm supposed to know how to appropriately use those. I'm just um, I'm sticking with he and she. There you go. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be back in just a moment. More with Steve West, the editor of the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine. Continuing our conversation with Steve West about uh, all things Liberty Roundup, which you can find the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine, WNG.org. Uh, Steve, this case of um, members of the Sikh community who are also serving in the U.S. military, um, this is a fascinating religious liberty conversation. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, well, you know, readers may wonder why we're talking about beards and turbans this morning. Uh, that's because we have Sikh believers here. And why are we talking about Sikh believers? Because they are uh, members of a religion. They are subject to uh, the same kind of things that uh, Christians might be subject to. And here we have four Sikh believers, one of which is in the military, in the Marine Corps, three of which are prospective recruits. And they have brought a lawsuit. After some time trying to work with the military, they brought a lawsuit uh, against the military, you know, because they are challenging the military's restriction on beards and turbans. Now, beards and turbans for Sikhs are a matter, an article of faith. It's something that they are required to do as a part of their identity. Uh, you know, and so, so this is a, a matter of religious exercise for them. And the military says, look, everybody's got to do the same in boot camp when they come through boot camp. You know, we're taking everybody down to, you know, uh, from their individuality to build a team spirit. And so, no, you can't have a beard and you can't wear a turban. And they also say there are safety concerns about it, uh, particularly, especially when you're in combat in terms of like wearing a gas mask, if you had to do that, maybe there's other safety concerns they have, but these are the things they cite. And the Sikhs say, look, you know, we, this is a part of our religion. And they cite the federal uh, religious freedom restoration act, which only allows the government to burden the exercise of religion when a compelling government interest is at stake and it requires it to use the least restrictive means. And they're saying, look, uh, Marine Corps, you you don't have a compelling enough interest in making sure everybody looks the same in boot camp. Uh, and you also allow you don't you don't uh, administer this fairly because you allow soldiers who, for medical reasons, require a beard to have a beard, even when they're in combat. And the military allows other things like like uh, certain tattoos or you know, soldiers can wear even though they're in boot camp. So they're saying it's not applied evenly to us and you don't have a compelling enough interest. So that's what's going on in this particular case. So as the as the Marine Corps and other branches of the U.S. military, you know, are um, seeking to attract personnel in what I think we can all um acknowledge is a a very diverse nation in terms of religious expression and practice. Um, 
also recognizing that, you know, there has to be this like literally uniform code. Um, but but then realizing that there are people of particular faith expressions um, for whom those requirements, particularly in relationship to uh, what they're wearing and and or facial hair in this case, um, but it might be something else down, you know, down the road. Um, and I and I think this is a complex conversation, and I think it's one that, uh, you know, as a Christian, I'm probably not like I have to be. I have to become sensitive to, because I'm not inclined to think that what a person is wearing on their head um, or their variety of facial hair is a particularly religious issue, but for them it is. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. And I think we have to um, we have to realize that this, like you say, has ramifications, you know, farther down the line. If it's not religious liberty for all, then it's not religious liberty for Christians. Is is the is the fact. And you know, it made me think about uh, the way that the military has treated uh, religious objections to the COVID nineteen vaccines. You know, some some small minority of people who are in the military, soldiers that are in the military that have an objection to the, the vaccine. And the military has not uh, been accommodating at all to religious objections to the vaccine. Uh, and they haven't granted, they granted hardly any of these religious objections. It's pretty much a cookie cutter sort of um, denial of it based on force readiness. Uh, and so that is an area where it seems also that these, this kind of, case can have an impact because it'll it'll say you know how compelling must the government the government's the military's interest be and then how uh, are there are there some other least less restrictive way that they can accomplish their military objectives without without burdening this exercise of religious freedom and you know oftentimes i think that they can it's a large bureaucracy it's often easy to say no to everybody rather than try to uh, exempt certain people but uh, and they certainly have compelling interest in safety and security and all of those things. But there may be ways that they can accommodate religious freedom, which is also a very important First Amendment freedom. It's interesting because there's a you know, there's an Army Reserve conversation about this the same thing. So this is the Marine Corps conversation version of it. Um, there is uh, a, a member of the Florida Army Reserve um, in the Army who uh, – is a Nazarite, right? So he takes very seriously the Nazarite vows from the Old Testament in the Bible, and he applied for religious exemption a few years ago, explaining that no razor would be used on his head. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think that Christians can become sensitive to these concerns. This is like one of those where I guess I, uh, I imagine, Steve, that there are people tempted to roll their eyes, and I think that we need to, you know, we, we need to recognize them that what people wear on their heads and the way they wear their hair, like actually it can be of particular religious concern. And we need to be sensitive to that. And, and it's also a great conversation in, just in terms of like church and state. This is a good intersecting point of the interest of the state versus the interest of a, of an individual and their religious expression. So thank you for bringing us this story. Um, I think it's, you know, it's helpful to have these conversations. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. All right. That's Steve West. He's the editor of the Liberties Roundup at World Magazine. You can um, you can read what I'm reading because Steve very graciously, you know, like sends it out via an email. So you can check that out at World News Group. 
wng.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. All right, we uh, we use the term worldview pretty frequently, and uh, somebody asked recently, what, "What do you mean when you say that?" So, what I mean when I use the term worldview is the frame or the lens through which you consider everything. So, it's uh, it's your epistemology. It's it's how you know the things you know. So, in my case, uh, my worldview is influenced not just through that which I receive through my five senses. Um, but it is influenced by revelation. So I am a person whose worldview allows not only for that which is present in my own environment right now, but for um, God to <laughs> reveal and intervene. Um, it's uh, It includes your cosmology, like what you think about the universe and and everything in it. It's, uh, it includes your theology, like how you think about God and what you think about God. And because what you think about God influences absolutely everything else, and including your anthropology, what you think about people, um, who we are, what we are, what we're in the world to do. Um, there, so there's everything is influenced by our worldview, the way we see things and uh, and then the way we behave because of the way we see things, the way we respond. So according to George Barna, um, you know, our worldview is really formed by the time we're 13 years old. Um, there's ordinarily for most people very little movement in worldview after that point. So you are operating out of a fairly fixed frame in terms of your worldview. And so is everyone else. And so if you are looking at the world and everyone and everything in it through a particular lens that is informed by the Bible, and other people are looking at the world and everything in it through a lens that is not informed by the Bible, you're literally seeing a different world. And so we want to talk with George Barna today about Christian parents or at least parents who uh, say that they are Christian, but who aren't practicing what they preach, and so they are forming in their children a very confused worldview. I want you to think about that for just a moment. How does your worldview, the way you see the world and everything in it, people and everyone in it, the issues of the day, how does that influence the way your children or your grandchildren see the world? Their worldview is being formed right now. What is informing and transforming their worldview? That's up next with George Barna. There should be some flourish of music celebrating that George Barna is back. Welcome back, sir, from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. It's good to have you. Well, thanks. It's good to be back. It's been a while. It has been a while. So in the interim, you have learned some things about parents in the United States of America and their worldview. Can you um, kind of read us in on the research? Yeah, I mean, essentially what uh, we were discovering is that when you look at the worldview of the parents of preteens, and by that we're talking about parents with children under the age of 13, and the reason we focus on that, of course, is because it's during those first 13 years of a person's life that they develop their worldview. Well, when we look at those parents, we know that biblically 
they are the individuals who have the God-given responsibility to shape the worldview of those children. And yet, as we looked at it, what we discovered is that only 2% of the parents of children in that age bracket have a biblical worldview. Now, why does that matter? Because, of course, you can't give what you don't have. And so knowing that most parents of preteens themselves do not have a biblical worldview is a bad omen for the future. But we also discovered, in addition to that, that most of these parents really aren't even thinking about the shaping of the worldview of their children. We found that they're either unaware that there even is a worldview development process, or they're kind of aware that their child's developing a worldview, but they don't understand that they personally, as the parent, have not just a role, but the key role in that process, or they're aware that the child's worldview is being developed, but toward that end, what these parents are doing is asking other people from outside the home to take a lead role in shaping that, whether that would be uh, you know, teachers or coaches or tutors or pastors or whoever it might be, parents are uh, abdicating that role to other people. So no matter what side of this coin you look at, it's kind of ugly. But of course, there's always hope this can be turned around. Yeah, I will say that, George, as I was reading this, um, you know, I it's as if God was, you know, pressing in on my brain saying, hey, there is really a great opportunity here. These are parents who are looking for outsiders to influence their children. They are accepting of other people coming alongside them um, in what we would have traditionally thought of as a parenting role. It could be a grandparenting role. It's an opportunity for the church um, to intervene and offer mentoring. I do think this is a great opportunity for the body of Christ to step up and press in um, and creating those um, points of contact with these families is maybe what is essential. They do, many of them, view themselves as Christian. They do. In fact, it's about two out of three of today's preteen parents would call themselves Christians. Although when we looked at that particular group, what we discovered that it doesn't seem to be making too much difference because only 4% of those who describe themselves as Christian, have a biblical worldview. So it's better than the rest of the group, but it's really not that outstanding. So would you say, though, that there is the possibility that they would be open to expressly Christian influence, or do you see them actually preferring to expose their children to voices and people, influencers, who are intentionally not coming, not operating out of a biblical worldview? Like, is there is there a conscientious effort to expose their kids to alternative um, ideas? No. Uh, what we have is a group of parents who don't frame the issue in those terms. Mm. Most parents of young children are not thinking about worldview. Now, because every decision that we make in life stems from our worldview— their worldview is playing a part in their choices. But one of the choices they're making is not, I must be intentional and strategic about the development of my child's worldview. Instead, what they're doing is they're drawing from their own worldview, things like their perception of what is the purpose of life? Well, it's to be happy and comfortable. What is success? 
well success is achieving comfort success is achieving happiness and so those are the kinds of things that they're really gearing everything toward it's not that worldview doesn't play a part it's just kind of a, an unconscious or subconscious part where it's directing the flow of parenting activities but not in a way that puts worldview in the forefront. We're talking with George Barna. We're talking about uh, the most recent research by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. You can find what we're talking about today at arizonachristian.edu. So, George, um, I did a little thinking after reading this research and thought to myself, all right, let me compare this to things that I know about people I know. And um, this one particular family came to mind. They would absolutely describe themselves as Christians. But when it came time to name godparents, to invite people to be the godparents of their children, they, um, they chose people who aren't even Christians. And um, as I consider that now and think about it, they chose people who are successful and, um, and quote-unquote happy or certainly comfortable. And so I think that my own observation um, mirrors what you have learned. Even people who are Christian parents are not making decisions about how they surround their children with outside influence based on a Christian worldview. And, and that's just going to reinforce for those kids um, a worldly view, I mean, worldliness, I don't know how else to say it. Well, yeah, I think it's a good point. And I, I always admonish people to be careful about anecdotes because that's all it is. But, sure. uh, you know, I think what you're pointing to is something that's an important consideration. You know, most American parents have, as part of their worldview, the idea that, well, all people are good. Mm. And, you know, when it comes to morals, you know, why would you pick a godparent? Because you want somebody Hopefully, should something happen to the, the parents, the godparents could step in and guide those children. How do you want them to, to be guided? Well, you want them to be good. And so, you know, most people would qualify for that role. When you think about things like morals, remember that the vast majority of American parents today say there's no such thing as absolute moral truth. There are no truths that are consistent for all people. Uh, they, they tell us in the research that all truth is, uh, you know, subjective, not objective. It's very personal, depends on their feelings and the circumstances. And so when somebody like your friends are, are picking, you know, a, a set of godparents, they may be thinking, well, we need someone who would be uh, able to take care of the kids. So being comfortable financially and in terms of lifestyle takes higher priority than someone who wants to know, love, and serve God with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul, which is the purpose of a human being, but it's not one that most American parents acknowledge. And so one of the things that this research points out is that we have an entire generation of parents right now that in some ways it, it, it talks about Christian principles, if not biblical principles. And, and I make that distinction between Christian and biblical because most people, interestingly, when they talk about it, they talk about having a Christian worldview, which to them means, oh yeah, I want to be a good person, as opposed to a biblical worldview, which is I need to know 
God's instructions and commands and principles for my life, because that will make life go well for me. It will honor God. It will give me a deeper life. There's a real distinction there. So we've got parents who basically are are talking about some of the Christian ideas, but they're not really living them out. Yeah, there's certainly a difference between the creation, fall, redemption narrative and um, and just being a pretty good person, living a pretty good life. All right, we are talking with George Barna. We're talking about the latest research from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. There is a serious worldview dilemma among the people of parenting age in our country, particularly of preteens. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Continuing our conversation now with George Barna, you can find the research we are discussing at ArizonaChristian.edu. It is the latest from the Culture Research Center there. We're talking about the worldview dilemma being faced by parents in America, many of whom would describe themselves as Christian. By that, they don't necessarily mean that they are um, operating out of or living into what uh, we would recognize as a biblical worldview. I describe them functionally as syncretists. They are, um, they may say that they believe a certain set of things. They're talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk, and it's creating great confusion, understandably, among their children. So, George, you want to connect some dots for us in all of this? What are the practical implications uh, of this research? Well, there's a lot. I mean, first of all, let's think about where children are getting their cues from for the rest of their life. It should be coming from the home, predominantly from the parents. The scriptures tell us that, whether we're looking in Deuteronomy or Proverbs or other passages that talk about that responsibility. And so as as we look at the data, what we're finding is that there are particular areas where parents are weak in their worldview. We could look at their understanding of things like the Bible and the nature and, and reality of truth and how one makes moral decisions. Only 5% of today's preteen parents consistently think and act biblically in regard to those seminal kinds of concepts that, that we draw from the Christian faith. Uh, we can look at, at the same proportion, consistently thinking and acting biblically in, in relation to human nature or character or in relation to sin and salvation and uh, having a personal relationship with God, only 4% consistently think and act biblically in terms of their chosen lifestyle, the nature and quality of their personal relationships, uh, and, and of course, their personal faith practices. So when you put all of those you know, low incidences of thinking and acting biblically together, that's how you come up with only 2%. Uh, parents, you know, four out of five or more times making a biblical choice, whether it's a belief or a behavior. And so these are the areas perhaps where we need to be focusing uh, first and foremost. So is is this an intervention with the parents or should we just really seek to become influencers in the lives of these children? Yeah, I, I, I think it needs to be both because parents are going to continue to have influence on their children, whether we want them to or not. And frankly, in most cases, we probably don't want them to, given where they're coming from. 
but it's going to happen just like influence from the arts and entertainment media is going to happen just like influence from public policies and laws is going to happen. So if we want to turn the ship, other people have to step in and take a greater role in that process. Now, as we look at grandparents, what we see is that they're several times more likely to have a biblical worldview than today's class of parents. So grandparents would be one place to start. But let me encourage you, Carmen. I mean, the kind of thing that you're doing on the radio of trying to inform people, trying to motivate people to rethink some of how they're thinking and living, that's critical. And I know this because when we looked at at today's parents, we also looked at how many of them listen to religious radio programming or, or religious podcasts. And we found that about three out of 10 of them are listening to such broadcasts over the course of a typical week. And so that can have a tremendous influence if if there's a consistent message. Now, the problem or the challenge we have is the consistency of the message, not with you, but with a lot of the other programs that they may be exposed to, they may be listening to things that will turn them down the wrong path. We know that, for instance, by looking at the churches they go to. One of the things that we discovered is that uh, people are nine times more likely to be a parent with a biblical worldview if they're attending a, uh, you know, a uh, an evangelical church, an independent or non-denominational church, or a Pentecostal church, than if they're attending a Catholic, a mainline Protestant, or a traditionally Black Protestant church. Nine to one ratio. So. Again, just because you go to church, just because you listen to religious radio, just because you watch uh, religious television doesn't mean that you're going to get the right messages because a lot of the bad information that people get under the banner of Christianity is even coming from those places. Yeah, and then the issue is discernment. And if you've not been equipped to discern the difference between you know, teaching that is consistent with the scriptures and teaching that is ultimately false and, and another gospel, um, I mean, if if you don't know the truth, then you can't identify the lie. Um, and so that becomes, I think, a critical part of this conversation. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, toward that end, one of the things that we're discovering is that's why, first of all, the, the, the one thing that the Christian churches in America seem to be relatively good at is developing community, giving opportunities for relationships and for conversation. And those people who have a biblical worldview need to exploit that opportunity, that strength within the Christian churches across the country, because it's on the basis of that relationship that you may have with someone who does not have a biblical worldview that you would be able to lead them to developing that kind of a worldview. And the research is also indicating to us that it's not done simply by pointing to more scripture or more verses so that people have more information. What they need is a conversation wherein they believe they can trust the person they're talking to, wherein they believe they're being heard. And so toward that end, it has to be kind of a Socratic conversation where we're not telling people what to believe, we're asking them what they already believe. Their beliefs are already in place if they're adults. And so all we need to do is identify those beliefs and then gently, lovingly, biblically question 
Well, why do you think that's true? How did you come to that conclusion? What does that look like in practice? All of those kinds of follow-up questions that really start to dig a little bit deeper into the person's worldview and that then give us the opportunity to display what a biblical worldview might look like in that context. We can't force them into a biblical worldview. They may never change, but that is our best opportunity at this point in our culture's uh, development to have that kind of an impact. That's so helpful. George, as always, thank you so much. That's George Barna from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. You can you can read the articles that we were discussing today at arizonachristian.edu. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, that music indicates that it is time for the Friday Farm Report. So before we um, get to that, I really want to encourage you to think for just a moment. Think for just a moment about a mom or a dad you know who has young kids. All right, have you got somebody in mind? Who do you know that has young kids? Now hold them in your mind for just a moment. They got a lot going on. They've got a lot to think about. And most of them are not thinking strategically and intentionally about worldview and cultivating a worldview in the life of their child. But now you're thinking strategically and intentionally about that child and about how you might come alongside that family to help them intentionally cultivate a biblical worldview. And summer is coming. I know that you may think that spring isn't even hardly here yet, but summer is coming. Planning has already begun for everything from summer camps to vacation Bible schools. And and I think that um, as Christians who recognize just how overwhelmed young parents are with so many things, maybe we could come alongside families who have young children this summer, and we could be intentional about our engagement with them. I mean, I'm thinking here, you know, less formal but equally intentional engagement. So if you're going to be planting a garden, what if you invited that family uh, to come and plant the garden with you? And you could talk about sowing seeds of peace and cultivating fruits of righteousness. And if, if we look around the culture and we see things that we don't like, what does it look like for us to till the soil? And I mean, you could actually have a worldview cultivation event and, hey, you get some little helping hands, right? And the joy of intergenerational fellowship. So, you know, as we're as we're talking about the farm report, um, I want you to consider all of the opportunities maybe that God is going to set before you in the coming days and weeks and months. And how might you turn those into little microscopic ministry events um, by simply inviting a family with children to join you? That's that's all I'm talking about. I'm not talking about anything complex. I'm not talking about developing a curriculum. I'm not talking about buying a book. I'm just talking about inviting that friend, that family that God brought to mind. When I said, who do you know who has little kids? Inviting that family to join you in something that, you know, frankly, you consider pretty run of the mill and mundane. Just invite them to come along with you and join you in that. 
And then for those of you who are looking for a curriculum and something intentional, let me remind you about the conversation we had with Elizabeth Urbanowitz about uh, Foundation Worldview. And just a reminder that you can find that curriculum at foundationworldview.com. Now, for the Friday Farm Report, um, I have three things. Ticks, 11 baby chicks, and a story about mowing that ends in an act of grace by my husband. So, quickly, ticks, they're back, and they're disgusting. There you go. That's the tick report. Um, There are 11 baby chicks. Matthew uh, went with uh, his grandma, Omi. Um, on a little adventure this past week to select what were supposed to be 10 baby chicks. And when they got home and we got them out of their little boxes and put them in their, this, you know, I don't know, it's basically like a giant bucket uh, because you raise them for a while uh, in that environment before you put them in the, in the small coop before they graduate to the big coop. I mean, no, it's a process. Um, I'm like counting little heads and I'm like, um, there are 11 So somehow uh, they came home with 11 chicks instead of 10, which, you know, that's just God's abundant joy, right? And one of them was supposed to be a rooster. And so I'm like, well, which one is the male? And Matthew said, well, they taught him that if you hold the little chick in your hand and you turn it over on its back, the little girls won't struggle, but um, but the rooster will. So we did that and we found our rooster. And sure enough, that works. And that was kind of fun way to discover that. Now, quickly, on the story of mowing, if your wife runs over um, a a hidden wound up piece of wire that she failed to pick up in the yard because it was kind of buried in the what is basically hay this time of year, um, show the kind of grace that my husband showed. Go get the tractor, link it up to the front of the lawnmower, elevate it far enough that you can lay down on your back and piece by piece by piece unwind that cord that wraps itself like a vice grip around the interior parts of the lawnmower. I know, I know. Show great grace. These things happen. Aren't you just glad that we get out there and mow? There you go. That's the Friday Farm Report. Uh, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.